You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. Uh, we're going to start at verse 21. Uh, and in this passage, we're going to see Jesus preparing his disciples for what's about to take place. Uh, and as I was thinking about this, I had the privilege recently to go on a flight to Florida. Uh, thank you to you as a church family uh, for the generosity that you have toward our church. Enable us at times as pastors to even be cared for. We got to go to Florida for a pastor's conference, and we got the privilege of even flying down there, which was a, a great blessing. But on the flight, I was reminded of something. I don't fly often, but I was reminded of how kind of silly and funny I think it is to have these, I don't even know what you call them, but these uh, pre-flight safety instructions. Do you know what I'm talking about? If you've flown before, you know that uh, most airlines have some sort of flight attendant or stewardess stand near the front of the plane before it takes off, and they look like they would rather be anywhere else in the world but there. And they're giving all these directions about emergency exits, like by the wings and the, the aisle down the middle and lights that will turn on and how in the event of an emergency these these air masks will fall down and make sure you put your own on first and then somebody else's and they just are rolling through this routine and the first few times I flew I was really attentive like I need to know every little detail of this just in case uh, this plane goes down and what do we do if it hits water and what if it's in this scenario but I found the more that I flew I just zoned out like I tuned out I don't pay attention uh, and as I looked around, even on the flight this time, other people are doing the same. We're not listening. We're not engaging. And our plane could crash, and it would be really good to know these things. Uh, and our, our, they're trying to prepare us for these things. They're trying to get us ready for it, even the unlikely event that these take place. And we are just zoning out, listening to our music, talking to our friends, looking at the Sky Mall magazine in the seat in front of us. We are, we're not listening to these preparations that they're trying to give us. And Jesus, this night, we're up to the point in the story in the life of Jesus where we're literally at the night before he's about to be crucified. And Jesus, in this passage especially, but in all of these next few chapters that we're going to read, is trying to prepare his disciples uh, for even the events that are about to unfold that weekend, the awful events of his betrayal and arrest and crucifixion and ultimately his death. Uh, he is trying to prepare them for this. And we're going to see as he's doing so that they're not getting it. And it's not necessarily that they're not paying attention, that they're just zoning out, but they're, they're not really getting the weight of these things that he's saying are going to happen. And it's not some minuscule chance like it is with the plane crash. It is definitely going to happen. He's telling them, this is going to take place, and I want you to be ready for it. And as we read this, we should be listening as well. We should be trying to see not just how did he prepare them, but why did John record this for us as people who are reading it now? Like, what is the Lord trying to prepare us for, get us ready for as well as people who live even almost 2,000 years later? And so I'm going to read this whole passage, John 13, 21, and we'll go all the way through the end of the chapter uh, to verse 38. And then we'll walk back through it and see what the Lord would have to teach us as people who weren't in this room with these men that night before Jesus was crucified, but who have had this written down for us and are to be instructed by it and prepared by it ourselves. And so I would note to you before we read this that hear these preparations of Jesus in the context of his love for his disciples. Um, if you look back at the start of chapter 13 as this whole last evening starts, how John records this in verse 1, he says that before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, then he said this, he said, having loved his own, who are in the world, 
He loved them to the end. And so everything Jesus does that night, from washing their feet like we saw last week to now these preparatory remarks to these commands that he's going to give, it's all done out of love. And that's important to remember because he's going to talk about people betraying him, denying him in this passage, and he's trying to prepare them for these things, but to do so out of love. And so let's read this, John 13. We'll start at verse 21 and go to the end of the chapter. So John records this. As someone who is in the room and who is now inspired by the Holy Spirit to record this, he wrote this for us. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, this is that very meal we read about earlier, by the way. When he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, this is to Judas, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless his preaching. This text is weighty. There there are heavy things that Jesus is predicting that he's trying to get his disciples ready for. Uh, And I would simply say that I think what we can learn from this passage, what we could walk away with this morning is this, is that we, just like the disciples then, we are to listen to the Lord's loving preparation. That we're to listen to the Lord's loving preparation. And in this passage, I think you see Jesus preparing them for a few things in that immediate situation, but then things that we can learn from as well. We see that he's preparing his disciples for his betrayal, He's preparing his disciples for his death. And he's preparing his disciples, lastly, for their denials of him. 
He's trying to get them ready for these things that are about to unfold. And so we'll walk back through this and see him getting his disciples ready for these things and what we can learn, what we can be prepared for ourselves as people who live now later in a different situation. But I think first, at the beginning of this story, this interaction with Judas, you see Jesus very obviously, he's preparing his disciples for his betrayal. So John has mentioned, if you've read, if you've been with us as we've gone through the Gospel of John, or if you've read it before, you may note that there's a few times even earlier already in the book of John, where John recorded that Jesus knew all along that he was going to be betrayed and that he was going to be betrayed by Judas specifically. Like he mentioned it as early as John chapter 6, and Jesus has dropped hints about one of you is a devil amongst us. He's, and John records that Jesus knew it was going to be Judas And so Jesus has known all along that Judas was going to sell him out for 30 pieces of silver, as we learn in the other Gospels. But note how John starts this passage, that even though Jesus knew those things, it says that Jesus was troubled in his spirit as he's about to tell them this. Like he had known about it for years, and yet the weight of it is sitting on Jesus' spirit that one of his friends, one of the men he's invested in for years now and taught and loved and just washed his feet, is now going to walk out of this room and go to the Jewish authorities and sell Jesus out for a mere 30 pieces of silver. And Jesus is troubled in his spirit as he contemplates this and as he's about to try to make it even more clear to his disciples. And John makes it very evident to us that Jesus wanted them to know that he knew in advance Judas was going to do this. Like if you look back, for example, uh, at, at the previous verses that we looked at last week, look at back at verses 18 and 19. Jesus said this. He said, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And then John records that Jesus said this about Judas going to betray him. He said, I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. And so it was a really big deal for some reason, John records for us, that Jesus wanted them to know, I knew, Jesus knew in advance this was going to happen, that Judas was going to betray me, he was going to sell me out. And we might think, why was that important for Jesus? Why did he want them to know? Why did he try to make this clear? He could have just let it be a surprise to them. But I think why Jesus wanted them to know is because you could imagine this. If, if they didn't know that, and it just comes as a surprise to them that Judas betrayed him, that he sold him out, if it's totally a surprise to them, you could see how his disciples in the days that would ensue after this, even on Friday and Saturday as the crucifixion takes place, you could see how they might start to wonder, I thought Jesus was divine. Like, I thought he was the Messiah. Like, I thought he is this one who knows all things and knows people's hearts and, and knows people's intentions. How did he not see that coming? Like, because surely if he saw it coming, if he saw that Judas was going to sell him out, he would have done something to, to stop it. And you could see how Satan could have used a lack of knowledge for confusion and to, to breed seeds of doubt in these early disciples of Jesus after he'd been crucified and betrayed. But he wants them to know all along, I've known this is going to happen, and I'm even in control of it. Like, I'm directing it. I'm steering this ship, so to speak, towards this end. It's, it's fascinating to think about because Jesus in this moment, you see this unfold even in how the conversation happens, of like how he kind of privately tells this disciple that he loved, who as best as we can tell, that's John himself, 
uh, in verses 23 and 24 and 25, you see even this kind of private conversation as Jesus has said, one of you is going to betray me. He wants them to have enough information that once it happens, they can connect the dots backwards. Like, okay, like he knew all along. Like uh, that reassures me that he knew what he was doing. Yet, he doesn't want them to know so much that they try to stop it right then, right? We're going to see later in that night, Peter even gets to a point where he will take out a sword and cut a dude's ear off, like to try to stop the arrest of Jesus. And so Jesus wants his disciples to know just enough where they can connect the dots afterwards to know he had known all along. But he wants to keep it private enough. He even says kind of privately to John that the one who's going to betray me is the one I dip this bread uh, in and then hand this to. And so he gives John a hint that it's going to be Judas. But then it seems like the others don't know what's going on. And so even after Jesus tells Judas to go and, and do quickly in verse 27 what you're about to do, Verse 28 says that no one at the table knew why he said that to them. So it's like Jesus wants them to kind of know, but wants them to be in the dark a little bit. Uh, but but he, he wants them to know mostly after the fact so that they can piece together. Jesus knew this all along. He, he knew what he was doing. He even know he is the one. He's planting these seeds, I think he wants them to remember. He's the one who tells Judas when to leave and how to do it, isn't he? Like Judas is just sitting there probably racked with temptation and Jesus tells him to go. And so that, I think, rings in these disciples' minds afterwards. Like, man, Jesus was in charge of this. Like he wasn't surprised by it. He wasn't stunned by it. He wasn't shocked by it. He knew it was coming and he walked right into it on purpose. He even directed it. And so Jesus was wanting them to know this. He was wanting them to be prepared for when it took place and know that he was not surprised. Even though the depth of the betrayal is deep, like this giving of bread and sharing a meal with someone should have bred this intimacy and closeness that can never be broken between people in that culture. Yet you see, even as Jesus is sharing this meal and just washed Judas's feet, Judas is going to walk out of this room into the night and go sell out his friends. But they are oblivious to this, his disciples. But later they'll connect the dots. And so I was thinking about this as Jesus is preparing his disciples for his betrayal. I was thinking, what relevance does that have for us? How might that prepare for us to know that this took place? And the first thing that I would say to us as God's people today is to note this, is that God sees what you don't. Like God is aware of all things at all times. That even when people are scheming or there are things that are hidden from you, there is nothing hidden from him. Like he sees all. He, he knows all. And that he can be trusted. Like these disciples are sitting in this room with Satan himself apparently in the room, tempting Judas and then even possessing Judas, and they're oblivious to all these dynamics that are going on. But Jesus is full aware of it. And Jesus is orchestrating all of this the way that he sees fit. And there are always a thousand things we're not aware of going on in the world. But Jesus and the God the Father and the Holy Spirit are fully aware and they can be trusted with these things. And I, I thought also that, that we can know that sometimes God's going to withhold information from us. He's not always going to connect every dot for us and help us see the full picture of things. Sometimes he's going to wait and let us understand things later or maybe not at all. Uh, but that does not mean we cannot trust him. Also, with this passage, I think it's important for us to know when we are the recipients of betrayal. 
Like when we are people who are our loved ones, our friends, the people that we've entrusted ourselves to or have served, when they turn their back on us, when they double-cross us, when they do things secretly uh, to harm us and hurt us, we have a Savior who has experienced that himself to measure we can't even comprehend. And that he invites us to come to him with that hurt and that he can empower us in some way, just as he showed to Judas, to show grace to those people who've harmed us to show love and mercy to the people who have spoken ill of us, who have betrayed us. The Lord himself invites us with, when we've been hurt by betrayal to come to him and that he knows and that he can enable us. And lastly in this section, I think it's important for us to note that even people who have been close to Jesus can walk away from him. Like sometimes we just think if my kids grow up around Jesus and they hear all the right things and they know all the things, then surely they're going to come to faith. But you see, Judas was one who was with Jesus for years on end, day in and day out, and he still sells him out. And it, it ought not to surprise us when that happens in people in our lives that have been around the Lord in some capacity. You've even sat under his teaching, sat under his word, but they walk away from him. We ought to be prepared for that possibility in people in our life, as hard as that is for us. And so we see Jesus preparing his disciples for his betrayal. But as the night goes on, as it gets a little bit deeper into the night, and now Jesus has sent Judas out into the night to go do the awful deed of selling him out. John subtly mentions, you notice this at the end of verse 30, he notes that it was night. And it's like that should have been obvious. He already told us the time of day they were meeting, but it's like he's poetically describing this darkness that's starting to consume this evening, that, that Judas is walking out into the darkness that's not just physical, but that is spiritual, that there's this darkness that's going to start to pervade these events that unfold the rest of this evening. And we see in this next section, in this middle section of this passage, verses 31 to 35, that, that Jesus is preparing his disciples for his death. So he had pre- he's preparing them for his betrayal, but he's preparing them for his death as well. And you might wonder where I see that in verses 31 to 35. I, I would suggest it's right there in verses 31 and 32. Jesus is talking, now that Judas has gone out, he starts talking about the Son of Man. That's how he talks about himself many times, how he is being glorified now, and how God... God the Father is glorified. And he's talking about how there's this glory that's coming for both of them, right? In these very events that are unfolding right then. There's this glory that they're sharing, that they're even giving in some sense to each other. And if you remember just back a couple weeks ago, we saw that Jesus, when he talked about being glorified, he wasn't talking about like sitting on some throne or having all these people bow down to him. What he was saying of how he would be glorified most was when he would be lifted up on the cross. And so as he's talking about this glorification that's happening between him and God the Father and how they're building each other up in glory, he's talking about his death. He, they would have known this, and he, he's talking about this glory that's going to come in the cross and in his death. And you can see the deep love that Jesus has for these men who are about to walk through this. As in the start of verse 33, he calls them little children. Uh, I, I love that. Like It's not a condescending term. It's not like he's mocking them or making fun of them. It's a, a, a phrase of, of showing deep love for them, that he loves them to the end. And he knows they are about to see him crucified in less than 24 hours. 
like this one that they love, that they have given in some sense their lives the last few years to be around and to learn from and to, to model their lives after. He knows they're about to see him be betrayed, arrested, crucified, and laid in the tomb. And he has this deep compassion on them. And you can start to see it come out even in what he calls them. And he says, yet a little while I'm with you. Talking about how he's going to leave. That there's going to be this death that comes. And he says, you'll seek me. And just like I said to the Jews, uh, you will, where I'm going, you cannot come. And so he's telling them, I'm about to leave. There's this death that is imminent. But then in this moment where he's talking about this glorified cross he's about to suffer now he's about to leave he gives them this command that is so deep he says in verse 34 in this moment as he's talking about his death he says a new commandment i give to you that you love one another and that could seem like a really odd place to drop that in this command to love each other but jesus does just that as he's talking about this glory that's going to come in the cross and now he's going to leave he's saying it's going to be extremely important in this these next few days guys and certainly beyond to love each other, like to be there for each other. And he says it's a new commandment. Yet if you read through the Old Testament, you read like Leviticus 19, for example, which these men would have been familiar with. In Leviticus 19, God had said this in the law that they followed. He said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This was something that they had known for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, that they were to love each other. And so what does Jesus mean when he's saying there's a new commandment that I give to you? There's disagreement about this, and there's many ways we might think of it as new. But a few ways that I could think of it as being new, and the core way that I would say that it is new, is note what he adds afterwards. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And then how does he say it's after that? He elaborates, he says, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And he is about to lay down his life upon the cross out of love for his disciples, demonstrating love to them in ways that had never before been demonstrated, that he had not just become a human being, but he was going to demonstrate love and being willing to go to the cross and suffer and die for them. And he's saying, love each other the way I have loved you. So in that way, this is a new commandment. There's a depth of love that we are called to and specificity of love we're called to as his people that that people even in the Old Testament would have found hard to comprehend. Uh, They had not seen God as a human. They had not seen God literally lay down his life for them. But Christ is providing that model for them and saying, love each other that way. Love each other sacrificially. And there's other layers of which we might say it's new, uh, but... It is, it's a new commandment in that sense because Christ has set this new supreme example of love that he calls them to follow. But why does he say that here? Have you thought about that? Why did he command that here as he's talking about his death? And as he's, he's, why did he wait till now, right this night before, apparently, to give this explicit command? I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but in the day, the couple of days that were going to ensue after this, as these men experience this, this betrayal and arrest and, and the, the crucifixion of Jesus, do you know what crucifixions were supposed to do? M- most times, or many times at least, when there would be crucifixions, it would be because there was some leader who was trying to raise up an insurgents or to, to rally people behind him to, to undermine authorities. And the Roman authorities would raise people up on crosses as a spectacle to try to make people who were gathering around that man typically to scatter. 
and say, like, man, that dissolved quickly. Like, that didn't go like we thought it would. Like, our leader even was just crushed by them. We're fracturing off. Like, we're splintering. We're not banding together anymore. Like, that is done. There were other purposes to crucifixion, but that was certainly one of them. And that's what the Roman authorities would have wanted to happen when Jesus was crucified. That's what the Jewish authorities would have wanted to happen was that these disciples, this ragtag group of Peter and John and all these guys, that when they see Jesus lifted up on the cross and crucified, they're going to scatter. Like they're going to give up on each other. They're going to abandon each other. They're going to go back to their ways of life and fishing and collecting taxes or whatever else uh, they may want to do. But they are not going to stick together. But Jesus is saying, do not do that. Like I'm about to die. I'm about to leave. But it's going to be important even in this very weekend that you love one another, that you bond together, that you don't run off from each other, that you don't abandon each other. Be willing to stick together, to spend time together, to encourage each other. And that is what you see them do. Like when you read through the rest of John, when the world may have expected them to scatter and to go their own way and to stop loving each other, you see when the Lord Jesus is raised on Sunday and appears to them, guess what? Aside from Thomas, which we'll get to that section later, they are together. Like they didn't fracture off. They are together spending time together, praying together apparently. They are loving each other even in that weekend itself. They are following the Lord's command to love each other. And he's preparing them for this death, so that his death, so they may be bonded together in love. And so he was preparing them for that weekend. But this command is one that is now passed on to us as people who don't have to endure the crucifixion of Christ again and the chaos that would have happened that weekend. This command to love each other has been given to all Christians for all time. If you read the, the letter that John wrote, First John, it's in there several times that we are to love each other fellow Christians, as the way that God has loved us. And I would commend to us to be prepared to do this, to live this out in our lives today in 2018. And as long as the Lord waits to return or until we go to be with him, we are to love fellow Christians. Like Jesus told you to do that. That's not just me as a pastor saying you need to love your fellow Christians. Jesus commands you to love the people that he loves to serve the people that he serves, to care sacrificially for the people that he cares about. And there's many times as Christians, we look around at fellow Christians and we're not that impressed with them. We don't feel these natural affinities to them. We don't like the same things that they like. Or we're maybe in different social classes or we're different ages or different genders. And we would prefer to just more go and spend time with the people that we more resonate with, the hobbies we have, the interests we have. Or we maybe want to be a loner and just spend time uh, on our own all the time. But Jesus commands us to love. It's, it's, a, it's a command that he gives. It's not just something he expects to well up within us and that we just respond to, but it's something he commands us to do. It's not just an emotional, sentimental love, but it, it is an acting love. It's a sacrificial love, a, a choice love that he calls us to of our fellow Christians. And so for us, that would mean first that we need to know fellow Christians. You can't love those that you don't know. Like, we need to be men and women and young people and children who are involved in local church, like who actually know other believers that we can love, that we can give to, that we can pray for, that we can serve, whose 
feet we can wash, whether physically or metaphorically, like we saw last week. We need to actually know other Christians and make a choice to love them, to, to serve them, to give of myself to them, to use the gifts God's given me. And so we need to be present with fellow Christians in our worship gatherings, in our life groups, in our, our places that we have to serve. We need to be people who love fellow believers. And it's not that we are to not love the world. God so loved the world, right? But it's not that we're to love the world less, one commentator said, but it's that we're to love Christians more. Like we're to have a special love for the people that God has a special love for, that he laid down his life for. And this love is to be something that that prepares us, I think, just as it did for these disciples. This love that we share with fellow believers is going to prepare us for times of crisis. It's going to prepare us for these unexpected, unforeseen times like these men went through that we were not ready for, where we have these shocks to the system. And if we have not had relational bridges of love connected with our fellow Christians, when those times come, we're going to be isolated. We're going to be vulnerable. We're going to be these weak believers that Satan can just pick off and that he can can tempt and that he can lure. We need to have strong, loving, relational bridges attached to fellow Christians. So Jesus was preparing his disciples for his death. In the last section, that we'll end with this, the last few verses of this passage, you see Jesus preparing his disciples for their denials. And this is the weightiest, I think, heaviest part of this text. And Peter, he was listening to this conversation where Jesus had said, love each other as I've loved you. But right before that, you noted that Jesus said that a little while I'm with you, and then you're going to seek me, but where I'm going, you cannot come. And it's like Peter's mind got stuck on that phrase, and he totally missed the whole love each other uh, as I've loved you. His mind was just stuck on that first thing that Jesus said. And so Simon Peter in verse 36 says to Jesus, he says, Lord, where are you going? So he's going back to what Jesus said. And Jesus answered him and said, where I'm going, you can't follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. And Jesus is kind of cryptic here. He doesn't exactly answer specifically, but we know something that Peter didn't know as he heard this answer from Jesus. Jesus is planting seeds here that will connect, they'll connect up later, that ultimately Peter did die a very similar death to what Christ died. Like, if you read through church history, even read the end of the Gospel of John, it's foretold that Peter would die in very similar fashion to how the Lord Jesus died and would even die for him in some sense. But in this moment, in this weekend, Jesus says, you cannot follow me now. Like, someday you will, but in this stuff that's about to happen and where I'm about to go, which is to the cross, you will not follow me. You cannot follow me there. And it's, it's kind of cryptic, but, but Peter, he, does, he understandably isn't exactly tracking along, and he doesn't get this. He, he confidently asserts in this moment, no, Jesus, like, I, I don't think you understand how committed I am to you. Verse 37, he says, why can't I follow you now? Then he has the audacity to say this. He says, I will lay down my life for you. And I think he believes that. Like, I, this weekend, whatever comes, Jesus, I will die for you. I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus, remember, this is framed in love. Jesus speaks back to him. And he says lovingly to Peter, he says, Will you lay down your life for me, Peter? Like, you're going to lay down your life for me. 
And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. And a rooster crowing, they would have known, was just a few hours away. And he's saying, you're going to deny me three times. Like, even though you think you're so committed to me that you would lay down your life for me. I don't know what Peter's face looked like, but this is, this is what comes true. Like you read John 18, which we'll get to uh, after a while. Uh, you read John 18, and that is exactly what happened. Peter denies his Lord because people are asking him as crucifixion is drawing near if he knows him, and he denies it. And so the one who said he would lay down his life cowers in fear and denies the Lord, and Jesus knew it. And he, he's prepping him for this. He's wanting him to know, I know you're going to deny me. Like I, I, and he's not trying to humiliate him. He's not trying to, to make fun of him, I don't think, or just like put him in his place. He's trying to lovingly humble him and make him realize his place in the story. Remember, he, he's not trying to humiliate him. He just had told him, someday you will follow me. Like, someday you will die for me. But he wants Peter to feel his weakness. He wants Peter to feel the weight of the sin he's about to commit, of denying him, his Lord. But more than that, I think he wants him to know that when it takes place, when this denial does take place, he wants him to know that I knew you would do that. And I love you still. Like, I knew you would deny me. Like, I predicted it. I told you you would do it, and I love you still. And, like, you think that you will lay down your life for me? Like, I am going to lay my life down for you. Like, the one who is denying me before a little girl, I am going to lay my life down for you, Peter. And let's get this straight. It is not the other way around. And he wants him to know, like on that Saturday morning, I think, when he would have woken up after the crucifixion, and he knows Jesus' body is in the tomb, and he would have looked in the metaphorical mirror. I think he wants Peter to know on that Saturday morning, Peter, I knew you would do this, and I loved you nonetheless. And my love was not based on you perfectly obeying me and never denying me. It was because I chose to love you. And the other disciples are listening to this, and we get to read this now. And I think we can be instructed. We can be prepared for our denials of Christ because they will happen. We will deny Christ in different measures and at different times. And in those moments, if we come to him in confession and repentance, he wants us to know, just as he wanted Peter to know, that I will show you mercy like, I will show you compassion. I will extend forgiveness to you. He wants them to know that he is glad to do so. And we, as we read this text, I think we can be instructed to know we may end up denying Christ in ways we never thought we would. Like, Peter never would have guessed that he would deny the Lord like this, but he did. And there may be some seasons of our life as Christians where we think, I would never do that. I would never sin in that way. I would never say that thing. And we find ourselves in those places. We find our place having drifted into those places or making horrible decisions, making reckless choices and denying the Lord, walking away from Him. 
But we can know that when we find ourselves in those moments of denial of the Lord, rebellion against him, that he invites us to come to him, confessing our sin and repenting, and that he is glad to receive us. He is glad to forgive us. He is glad to make us clean, to wash our feet like we talked about last week, to, to, to enable us to continue to obey. But our standing, our good standing with God is not based on never denying him. It's based on what happened on the cross. It's based on Christ laying his life down for us. And when we do deny him, to come to him in repentance and faith. So Christ was preparing these disciples for his betrayal, for his death, for their denials. But I would say in closing, as we read this text, I think that we can see in the stories of Judas and of Peter, we can see through this text that Christ is preparing all of us who hear it, all of us who read it, for eternity. This passage is bookended by, did you, check, did you see this, that he says, truly, truly, two different times. He says back in 21, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, talking about Judas. And then in the end of the passage, verse 38, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow, Peter, till you've denied me three times. Jesus is saying to both of these men, you're going to deny me. You're going to abandon me. One is going to do it for money, and one's going to do it for safety. But they are pictures to us of how we are going to betray the Lord, how we are going to deny the Lord. There's a song called What Have We Done by King's Kaleidoscope that was just stuck in my head this weekend. And it doesn't rhyme. It's not a rhyming song. But the weight of these lyrics uh, just stuck with me. And my soul, they, they say this, they say, Oh, my soul, oh, my Jesus, Judas sold you for 30. I have done it for less. I said, Oh, my soul, oh, my Savior, Peter denied you three times. I have denied you more. And like every single one of us is guilty of these things. Judas is not different from us. Peter's not different from us. We all have rejected the Lord. But in these men, you have a picture, even as we see the ugliness of their sin and of ours, you have a very vivid contrast that mercy is shown to one and not to the other. The one, as he rebelled against the Lord and betrayed him, continued walking away from him, continued getting harder and harder and harder into his sin. And the other, as he denied the Lord, he was broken and he comes to him repenting and trusting in him. And the one the Lord turns away forever and puts his wrath on in hell. And the other is given grace upon grace upon grace and is invited into eternal life. And that is a picturesque of us, that we all have denied the Lord. And he invites us to come to him. He, he says he will make us clean, us deniers of him, if we will come to him in repentance and faith. And so if you have never in your life come to him in repentance and faith, you feel like, I am Judas, I am long gone, I am Peter, I have denied him hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of times, he would never forgive me. I assure you that he will if you come to him in repentance and faith. Because one life was laid down that weekend, and it wasn't Peter's. It was Christ, and it was for each of us who would come to him in faith.